0: Hello and welcome to Pedra's Points of Discussion Podcast. I am Jen Dawson, Pedra's Associate Director of Educational Programs, and I am back in Season 2 with our Drugs and Bugs Focus Study Group. This session is going to focus on EM, Rhyme, SJS, and TEN, the alphabet soup of severe blistering cutaneous adverse reactions. This is our third and final episode on this subject. And just a quick recap, in episode one, Dr. Erin Mathis outlined the reasons why it's important to distinguish between Rhyme and SJS T E N, followed by an episode two with Dr. Yvonne Chu taking on the role of Devil's Advocate as she argued that distinguishing the two can lead to more confusion when it comes to providers diagnosing these diseases. Now the group comes together to discuss the research gaps and what's needed to reach a consensus on this topic. If you haven't listened to the first two episodes, please go back and listen now before continuing on. Now, a couple of disclaimers before we begin. It's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance or the program presenters. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA or its presenters and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. Now I would like to welcome back your program presenters. Moderating this series is Dr. Michelle Ramin. Dr. Rameen is a clinical associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Calgary. She is also a clinician investigator at Alberta Children's Hospital. Dr. Rameen co-chaired PEDRA's 10th annual conference back in November of 2022 and has worked on countless research projects within PEDRA and is currently serving on PEDRA's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee. Lastly, she is the chair of PEDRA's Drugs and Bugs-focused study group. Joining Dr. Ramin is Dr. Yvonne Chu, Professor of Dermatology as well as Vice Chair and Medical Director of Pediatric Dermatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She also has co-chaired past PEDRA meetings and has been a key member of PEDRA for many years. At last and certainly not least is Dr. Aaron Mathis. Dr. Mathis is a Professor of Dermatology at the University of California, San Francisco She's been a long-time PEDRA member and has previously co chaired PEDRA's Best Practices Task Force. At this time, I would like to announce that Dr. Yvonne Chu has no relevant disclosures to this discussion. However, she has been funded by PEDRA for a study on Rhyme. Additionally, Dr. Mathis has no relevant disclosures to this discussion. Whoever she is the author and reviewer for Up to Date, and she has previously done some consulting two years ago, but that is not relevant to this topic. And finally, Dr. Michelle Ramin has no relevant disclosures, other than having been funded with Peter grants in the past. She also consulted in the last two years for dermatology products, but not specifically related to Rhyme. These include Abby, Boeinger, Ingleham, Eli Lilly, Leo Pharma, Pfizer, and Sanofi. With disclaimers, introductions, and disclosures out of the way, I will now hand it over to Dr. Ramin. Thanks so much, Jen. It's my
1: pleasure to be back again with Dr. Aaron Masses from UCSF and Dr. Von Chu from um, Medical College of Wisconsin. In the first two episodes, we explored some of the controversies and uh, I suppose conflicts between Rhyme and Steven Johnson syndrome. And in this episode, what we'll do is look at what we need to know in order to find more agreement and more commonality between these two opposing views. And I, again, I would just like to recognize Dr. Von Chu taking the opposing position um, for the value add for, this, uh, for, this, for the second episode. One of the aspects that I find most interesting is why some infections trigger rhyme in specific patients. Is there a specific genetic predisposition, like in the case of HLA typing for SJS and medications?
2: Uh, that's a, a great question, and it's one that I share with my collaborators and co-investigators. Uh, you know, Dr. Mathis, Dr. Goulet, Dr. Laura Corrales, and yourself in the study that we are doing. We are attempting to better understand the genetics behind rhyme. Um, And by doing so, we hope to elucidate the genetic underpinnings and then the pathways implicated in the pathogenesis of disease. And I think um, having that information um, could help us understand whether or not the molecular pathogenesis is the same or different from drug-induced epidermal necrolysis, or drug-induced TEN. And... um, as well as perhaps help elucidate whether or not uh, it is distinct from erythema multiforme. So I think um, this is a great area for further research and um, much more collaborative work that needs to be done.
1: Dr. Mathis, do you have anything anything to add? Any any other comments? I do think um, there has been a little bit of work in this
3: area um, from I think the infectious disease group in Colorado, and although they were specifically looking at HLA type in recurrence. Um, So in recurrent mycoplasma-induced rash and mucositis or merm or RIME. And I think that they did find a couple HLA type signals. Um, So I think that there is probably something about the host um, that, determines the reaction. I think it's also possible that there's something about the pathogen. Uh, we know that there are certain clusters of mycoplasma that uh, behave differently and cause different clinical features. So um, I don't think we know yet. And I think that there's a lot of work left to be done in this
1: area. The group you mentioned, I think, is, is Daniel Olson's group in Colorado. And they've done, they've done I think, work on both, both of those areas that you just cited with the different mycoplasma strains. I'm generalizing, but I think many people have noticed that that there tend to be outbreaks of, of rhyme where you don't see it for a very long time. And then all of a sudden you see these patients coming in, they always look the same. They have those crusty lips. They're kind of breathing through their mouth because they're congested and drooling. And you think like, there's gotta be something going on. And so that was one of the things I think they noticed in Colorado. And that was where they found that there was like specific genotype of mycoplasma pneumonia that was more likely to trigger rhyme during their outbreak. And then they found the HLA types, the HLA B27, I think in 51, were more common. But I have checked those in all the recurrent patients that I have seen, which again is like not a huge number of patients, but I've never found it. Have have either of you found any interesting HLA types in your recurrent patients?
2: I haven't checked. and um, I, I think this would be an area that would be interesting to see if we had a larger population of patients, if we were able to detect some of these smaller signals, but I have not. checked it. Neither have I. I would say, though, um, Dr. Mathis brings up a great point with the fact that um, there has been data linked to HLA types and cases of recurrent rime, because I think it may be um, supportive of this idea that perhaps there is a similar pathogenesis in some ways, right, compared to drug-induced epidermal necrolysis that you have to have a susceptible host who has specific HLA types along with a specific trigger, which is usually you know, a drug that has a you know, specific aromatic structure. And then the combination of the two triggers the clinical phenotype. I, I think that there may be some similarities that we, we will tease out as we go along. I do think that the best way to study these diseases is to have distinct nomenclature, at least for now, until we know whether or not um, these are distinct disorders or whether or not they are the same disorder. And it may be that as we do further research, we figure out that these are all the same disorder, and then we decide to lump them back together again. But I think the difficulty in doing research in this field currently is that you can t- pick up any case report, read the clinical description, and one set of authors will call it Ryan, another set of authors will call it SJS, and a third set of authors will call it EM major. And that then makes any synthesis of published data and any ability to um, cogently summarize the literature to be extremely, extremely challenging um, because there has not been good consensus in the dermatologic and medical community about what words to use. To- Name and describe these disorders.
1: So, in a way, it's are really ho- we're really hoping, I guess, to influence prospectively how the data is reported and how data is collected, so that we can provide better, I guess, better data in, better data out at the end, better analysis out at the end. Um, just as you were just talking about the medications and HLA types, a, a, a thought occurred to me, which is: is there when you mentioned talking treating these patients with etanercept? Does it matter for you, Dr. Chu, what the trigger is? So, for example, would you be more likely to use a tannercept in a patient who has a mycoplasma-triggered RIME, and do you think it works the same for a mycoplasma-triggered rhyme versus rhyme that tr- might be triggered by another, for example, viral infection? Um, and is there, do you think there could potentially be differences between the two? I realize I'm asking you a question where there's probably not enough literature to back up a response, but I'm just curious about your thoughts.
2: I cannot say that I have a high enough uh, n of ex- personal experience with using a amongst different triggers of rhyme um, to know whether or not there might be differences in response. My suspicion is perhaps not because I think if a tannercept is working for SJS that's triggered by drugs that it may not be nuanced enough um, to respond different different types of rhyme may not be nuanced enough to respond differentially to a tannercept I'd be really interested in what Dr. Mathis uh, thinks about that.
3: I don't know the answer. I think that Etanercept can work for pretty much any trigger. Um, I know that Cyclosporin has been reported for multiple different triggers with the same cutaneous morphology. And I would imagine that Etanercept would be similar. Um, my preference is always to, if I have a documented infection, make sure that that infection is being addressed also,
2: can you clarify, Dr. Mathis, if your patient has a viral infection? So let's say something like rhinovirus, where there is no effective antiviral therapy. Do you still give immunosuppression, or do you hold off until their infection has improved or cleared?
3: I don't know that I have a know that I have an answer. I think I don't know. I would rely on probably my infectious disease and the ICU colleagues at that moment, and have a conversation with all of the different members on the team to. Mm-hmm and Decide what the best thing to do was.
2: I had a very wise infectious disease doctor here who years ago said it should never be a contraindication to give immunosuppression during a viral illness. Um, not never, I, I should say never, uh, but that you know, for many of these reactions, um, it's the reaction that's more dangerous and not the infection. And so the very common scenario would be giving prednisone for somebody who has an asthma exacerbation from a URI. But the URI will kill the patient, but the asthma will. Um, and so I, I sometimes think of that when I am debating whether or not I wanna pull the trigger on immunosuppression, if I think it's just a viral. No, I don't wanna say just a viral trigger, but if I think it's viral and there's not a true bacterial cause somewhere.
1: I guess in most cases, um, when you when you do identify whether you identify a virus or you don't, where you have an unknown trigger, there may not be a more specific treatment, and so mm-hmm. managing the reaction, like you're saying, is probably probably the most critical part. Mm-hmm. And and just to to highlight something that you had mentioned earlier about treatment, that the timing of the treatment, I think that is something that both of you talked about, making sure that the treatment is initiated really early. Um, do you have I guess, can you give more, I guess, more specifics on how you how you decide? Like, let's, Is there a time point when you would get a patient maybe transferred from another facility, from a non-tertiary care center or non, um, like a peripheral center who might come to you? Is there a time when you wouldn't use immunosuppression because it's been going on for too long?
2: I can say that kind of as a uh, follow-up to the last comment that we had. I often tend to be making a decision to use immunosuppression in the emergency room before we have any viral or infection studies back. Um, it feels uncomfortable, but it sometimes really is just your clinical intuition and the um, collection of clinical facts that you have at that time to make a decision. Because I do think early intervention works better than later intervention. I think that when I am presented with a patient, um, who is several days into their disease course, I think about whether or not I feel like their disease is still progressing. If they are still making new blisters, or if there are expansion in size of existing blisters, um, or if there is erythema, um, that I um, view that as active inflammation that I can intervene and halt with the use of immunosuppression. If they are several days into their disease course and they've stopped progressing and all they have left are areas of necrotic skin that continue to slough, I don't think immunosuppression makes a big difference at that stage. And at that point, you're um, left to do supportive care only. Would love to hear what Dr. Mathis thinks because I think a lot of this is guided by personal experience um, and gut instinct rather than I would say strong scientific evidence.
3: I agree. I treat. Um, I would treat early. If I'm worried about an active infection, I would try to treat that infection simultaneously if I can. Um, If I can't, then I would still treat. Um, And then all of the things that you mentioned are what I look for as well. So erythema around the cutaneous lesions, progression, extension of blistering or denudation, and then fever is the other thing I would add to that, so if a patient is still febrile, then I think you have uh, room to make a difference with immunosuppressive
1: therapy yeah thanks so much that uh, i I would say I do very I met patients very similarly. I think the one thing that i that I may possibly do a little bit differently is that i I treat everyone with antibiotics on spec um, when i if they if they have any hint of a sore throat or a cough, maybe not as strong symptoms of a um, of a pneumonia, but um, you've you've both made me reconsider today whether I actually need to do that. And maybe I should be waiting for their initial PCR results to come back before I start. But I kind of think that a lot of those treatments are anti-inflammatory too. So it's kind of like a no harm done situation when we're trying to prevent progression.
2: Oh, I agree with you. I forgot to mention, I give everybody azithromycin until their mycoplasma PCR comes back. And then if mycoplasma PCR comes back negative, then we stop azithromycin. Um, okay, so I we're don't, actually
1: all on the same page then.
2: Yeah, I don't use any other antibiotics <laughs> or broad spectrum. Um, I don't usually do acyclovir. I, I don't know how you guys approach it, but I usually feel that the clinical picture is distinct enough from HSV gingival, uh, gingival stomatitis that I don't usually give IV acyclovir.
1: Yeah, I don't give acyclovir either, but I do sometimes give doxycycline. I had read in the States that you have more um, macrolide resistance in my, some like macrolide resistant um, mycoplasma and that it's actually quite prevalent in Asia. So for some patients, patients that are more than eight years old, sometimes I'll think about doxycycline, but I think there are, yeah, and the, possibly there's less drug interactions with cyclosporin, which the pharmacist will sometimes bring up as well. So the, the question from the audience is, is about recurrences. If there's a way to identify these patients early on based on their demographics or the type of infection that they have the first time, Um, are there genetics, uh, similar to the question previously, are there genetics that we can look for that it must be much harder than telling a patient to avoid a specific medication that will trigger their drug-induced epidermal necrolysis? This is potentially a condition that could be triggered by a wide range of infections. So how do you counsel these patients and um, what is is your approach?
3: Great question. And I think that that question highlights a lot of areas uh, where research is needed. I don't think that we have good predictors of who is going to get recurrence. Um, So I do not selectively counsel on it. I counsel everybody about the possibility. Um, And I think that what you mentioned previously about the psychological impact of this disease is magnified many fold when they have the recurrence. Um, and so I think it's important to be reassuring up front that you are part of their medical team and that you are going to help manage it um, and that they're not alone out there if they do have a recurrence. I hope that someday we have HLA typing or some other immunological markers that we can look at to help try to determine risk. Um, I have a lot of parents ask me whether their child has to avoid all future infections um, and like what are they going to do when they go to college or what are they going to do when they go to high school and people aren't masking anymore and they're going to get something. And does that mean that they're going to have a recurrence? And um, I, my experience has been that, no, they don't have a recurrence with every infection that they get and nor can they avoid completely getting all respiratory viral infections, um, you know, wash hands stay home and when you're sick things like that are pretty basic advice
1: thanks so much maybe um with the few remaining minutes that we have what what information do we need to be able to resolve the debate between SJS and rhyme
2: i think understanding the genetics and the molecular pathogenesis for me that would really clinch it to know whether or not these share similar pathways the same pathways or whether the pathways are distinct Um, I think it's going to really help me decide whether or not these are the same disorder, just caused by different triggers, or whether these are totally two different disorders. And I think that's going to help me. And I hopefully that information will then also lead to more targeted therapies.
3: I would add to that, that I think we need also improved diagnostic tools for infections. And I think that we're going to get that because I think there's already been an explosion in our ability to rapidly and accurately diagnose infections. And so I think that we will get better and better at knowing what's out there. I must say that I'm a little skeptical that we are ever going to solve this. I think it's going to end up being someday we may settle on a diagnostic algorithm that incorporates both clinical manifestations and triggers um, and puts them both in a line diagnosis but I don't know that we are ever going to get to a place where the clinical manifestations are correlated one to one with the trigger um, because I, that's just not how the body works I don't think um, but and it's similar to how we have progressed with a genetic with our genetic diseases where we know that a different, a, one gene can cause a different um, phenotype in multiple different
1: people. Thank you so much for sharing your yeah. solutions and your compromises um, over, over these three episodes. It really has been, uh, I, guess I, I guess it has been eye-opening for me to really dive into the discussion like this and uh, to, to deeply debate on these issues that I think sometimes now we take for granted. Where we, where we assume that there's a certain level of agreement and where, um, but I think it can be, I think it can be in some ways, it can set us back the fact that we don't, we don't look at the other perspective. And I think, I hope that this will make our work and our research better going forward. And we welcome collaborators and other people interested in uh, reactive infectious, mucocutaneous eruption, Stevens Johnson syndrome, toxic epidermal necrolysis, what am I forgetting? Join us, work with us on the, the research for the Recurrent Rhyme project that we are have established or to join the Drugs and Bugs study group, where we can help to develop new research ideas to have better information and better data to uh, drive our research forward.
2: And I was also going to mention, like Dr. Ramin said, if you're interested in this, um, please join us in doing a collaborative research for PEDRA but we also have an active study where we are trying to clinically phenotype and genotype patients with rhine. So if you have any patients with rhine, whether it is recurrent or single episode, uh, please remember that we have an active PETER study that is recruiting and um, contact either of us or any of us for more information.
0: But thank you again both so much for your time. Thanks so much for tuning in to this round of Points of Discussion brought to you by Pedra's Drugs and Bugs Focus Study Group. This has been EM, RIME, SJSTEN, the alphabet soup of blistering, severe, cutaneous adverse reactions. A very special thank you to Dr. Michelle Ramin for moderating, and a special thank you to Dr. Mathis and Dr. Chu for eloquently stating their cases. If you're interested in learning more about the projects within the Drugs and Bugs Focus Study Group, or would like to enroll patients, in the latest Rhyme study, or if you're interested in being a studio audience member for one of our podcast recordings, please email us at info@pedraresearch.org. Support for this podcast comes from Orthodermatologics and Insight Pharmaceutical Company. This is an independent medical education program. Pedra is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. Make sure you're following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at PJ Research so you don't miss any update and be sure to rate and review our podcast to let us know how we're doing. Thanks so much for listening.